Good morning. Well, I'm Rob Miller, one of the elders here at Bethel South, and it is my privilege to be with you this morning uh, as we look at the Scripture and we continue our journey this summer through selected psalms. This morning, we'll be looking at Psalm 139. It's possible it may not come up on the screen behind us. Uh, we had an electric storm on Friday that came through, uh, and apparently they're saying may have taken it out. So we're going to go a little old school today. So if you open up your Bibles or your tablets or your phones, whatever you have there, and we're going to look at Psalm 139. But before we do, let's open up with some prayer. Father, I do want to thank you for this time that you have called us together in your presence. I thank you, Father, for this word that we're going to look at, that we're going to delve into its riches today. Uh, Father, I would ask that you would help us to put away the distractions, that we could focus on your word and it would be imprinted on our hearts, Father. Lord, I ask that you just help me get out of the way and that these words would be yours and not mine. And Father, we just dedicate this time to your honor and your glory as we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So there's a documentary titled The Heart of Man. Now, part of this documentary deals with pornography and sexual addiction uh, and infidelity and how they destroy relationships. But running throughout is this story of the relationship between a father and his son. They, uh, the story starts out with, the, with the, the, the son as a young man, as a boy, and we see them fishing together, enjoying family meals together, and they like to play violins together. Now, the violin the son plays is one that his father has crafted for him. Now, this continues as the son becomes an adult. They continue to enjoy these meals together, to fish together, and, of course, play their violins together. But then the son sees a faraway island, and he's drawn to it. There's something about this island, its seductive, sublime beauty that's tugging at him. Surely whatever there, whatever's there is worth chasing after. And besides, he can always come back home. Despite his father beckoning, he walks to the cliff of the shoreline, drops his violin, and it crashes to the waves, and he jumps in. He gets to the island and sees what he's looking for, that seductive beauty that lured him. But it's too late for him to recognize that what he is surrendering to is the beautiful side of evil. But then, in a stark moment, he sees it for what it really is, ugly, empty, and devoid of love. So he tries to escape and swim back home, but the waves drive him back. Eventually, he's dragged to a cave where he's sealed in and he's chained. And not only physically chained, but he's chained in his own shame, self-loathing, and disgust. He sees that he's in a situation of his own making, and, and he can't escape it. But then we see his father cutting his way through the jungle, breaking down the wall, sealing a cave, going in, finding his son, and holding him. There's no look of disgust or disappointment. There's only the look that a father has of his love for his son. And then he opens up his knapsack, and he pulls out a new violin, 
that he has crafted for his son. Symbolic of a restored relationship. So as the scenes close, we see them again. The son's back home. They're enjoying a family dinner together. They're fishing together. And of course, they're playing their violins together. Much like this story, Psalm 139 deals with the relationship between a father and a son. In this case, David, a God, and David. But it also reveals some important characteristics of God. In this psalm, we're going to see God's omniscience, that God's all-knowing. We're going to see God's omnipresence, that God is present everywhere. And we're going to see God's omnipotence, that God is all-powerful. However, in this psalm, we're going to see how these big characteristics deal directly with David, how they play into this father-son relationship. And that makes this psalm deeply personal. David writes in a very intimate way how these big, infinite characteristics of God relate directly to him. Now, except for verses 19 through 22, uh, where David speaks about God's enemies, the only two characters in this psalm is God and David. We see the words you and your relating to God 30 times. David relates to himself, I or me, 48 times. Now, this psalm is divided into four stanzas of six verses each. And out of it, we have this beautiful picture of God in all his knowledge and his presence and his power. So let's start off with the first stanza. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So in the first four verses, David lays out a very complete picture of God's omniscience as it relates to him. David starts verse 1 with a statement that God has searched him, that he has plumbed the depths of David's heart and examined him. Then in the following verses, David goes on to explain how completely and comprehensively God knows him. Now, verse 2 starts with what's called a merism. Now, that's a poetic technique where the writer expresses a totality or completeness of something uh, by expressing two parts, which are typically opposites. When David writes, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, he is saying, God, you know everything I do from when I sit down and when I rise up and everything in between. Then we see that not only does God know when David does everything, God knows David's thoughts. And it goes beyond knowledge to discernment, to understanding David's thoughts. God doesn't just read David's mind. He knows David's mind. He knows and understands David's heart. And then in verse 3, we see another merism. God searches, examines where David walks and where he lays down, as well as everything in between. God is acquainted with all his ways. He knows the way or the path that David will travel in his life, where he's going to go, what he's going to do along the way. 
And because God knows David's heart, he also knows the way David is, his manner and conduct along the way. So we can say here that God not only knows the path that David will take in life, he also knows the way David is, why David does the things that he does. Then in verse 4, we have what I can only describe as a distressing concept. Before David utters a word, God already knows what he is going to say. And not just know it, he knows it completely, altogether. So here, David's going to connect God's discernment of his thoughts with the words that come out of his mouth. Uh, In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is talking about what truly defiles a person when he says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. It's as if God is saying, I know what you're going to say because I know and understand your heart. So we have this very complete picture of God's omniscience as it relates to David. There's not one thing about David God does not already know that God hasn't already examined and discerned. Now, at least for me, this is something we don't dwell on very often, this intimate knowledge that God has about each of us. I think we kind of intellectually understand that God is all-knowing. But here, David kind of slaps us in the face with this reality that God's omniscience extends to each of us. He is painfully clear that there's nothing about us that God doesn't know. That in fact, God knows ourselves, knows us better than we know ourselves. So as you might imagine, this makes David a little uncomfortable. Verse 5, when he says, you hem me in behind him before and lay your hand upon me. We see David's discomfort with his feeling of being confined because God knows everything about him. And I get that. So one morning after breakfast, I was about five or six years old. And my mother told my sister and me to go clean our room. So we lived in a two-bedroom house. My little sister and I shared a room. So we go in, I close the door, and I whisper to my sister, we'll just shove everything under the bed. No sooner had the words come out of my mouth than this loud commanding voice from the kitchen says, and don't just shove everything under the bed. Well, I was pretty shocked. How'd my mother know that? Well, kids... It's because parents know things, all right? My mother knew me well enough to know that when she sent me in there, my plan would be shove everything under the bed. So we're going to take this parental knowledge to an infinite level because there's a lot about each of us that we'd rather no one else knows. It can make us pretty uncomfortable when information about us gets out there. The stuff we'd rather keep to ourselves the stuff we're happy to keep private. However, God does not afford us that luxury. He knows us intimately and completely, warts and all. So David closes this stanza in verse 6, writing, Such knowledge is too high, I'm sorry, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. He admits this is far above his ability to understand. Now, the word wonderful here could also be translated as incomprehensible. 
And in the Hebrew text, that's the first word in the sentence. If we were to, to put this out in the way it is in the Hebrew Bible, it would be wonderful or incomprehensible is such knowledge for me. It is so high as to be inaccessible. So what David understands and what we understand is that God's omniscience, his all-knowing, is beyond the ability of our finite minds to completely grasp, or to grasp at all for that matter. Well, if David was troubled by the amount of knowledge that God has for him, you might go, what's the next question he's going to ask? Is there any way I can go to get away from God? So let's take a look at the second stanza. I don't know about out there, but it's dry up here. Starting in verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me up and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. So in two rhetorical questions, David asks, is there any place he can go to get away from God? And in answering these questions, he is going to give us the textbook definition of God's omnipresence. In verse 8, he writes, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So, in another merism, David uses the opposites of heaven and hell to demonstrate God's presence in those two places and everywhere in between. Now, also in his answer, he gives us another important piece to understand about God's omnipresence. David says, whether in heaven or hell or anywhere in between, you are there. He doesn't say, when I get there, you show up, or when I go there, you go along with me. He says, you are there. That there is no place David can go where God isn't already there. David acknowledges that no matter where he's at, God's already there. Whether it's standing on a battlefield with a sling and some rocks, or hiding in a cave to escape from his enemies, or walking on the roof of the king's house gazing down at a beautiful woman, David recognizes God is there. As uncomfortable as David was with how well God knows him, in verses 9 and 10, he's going to use similar language to describe his discomfort with God's presence everywhere as well. When he says in verse 9 and 10, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So when I lived in Utah, I loved getting out in the high desert, particularly before sunrise, to do some photography. Uh, it's really a great time. But also quite often, the sunrises out there can be stunning. Because you have these crystal clear skies, and then the sun breaks the horizon and it's as if you can see these rays of light just shooting as far as they can go off to the west. 
So if David could take the wings of dawn, if he could catch those rays of light that break from the east to the west and go as far as they go, in his case, when he said the uttermost part of the sea, he was talking about the Mediterranean, which would be that sea to the west of where he's at. If he could suddenly travel unimaginable distances, or, as Buzz Lightyear would say, to infinity and beyond, God would not, would not let him go wherever he wanted. Using similar language to verse 5, where he writes, you hem me in and you lay your hand on me, here he writes, your right hand shall guide me, your hand shall grasp or hold me. David acknowledges, again, feeling confined. The Apostle Paul experienced this guiding during his second missionary journey, as Luke recorded in Acts 16. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go to, into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go. So passing Mycenae, they went down to Troas. Okay, so now we get to the last part. Can he hide from God in the dark? He starts with a hypothetical statement and then answers it. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So David's going to put the book in to what he started in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Even if he tries to hide in a dark place, it's not dark to God. God doesn't need light. We recall in Genesis on day one, God created the light because he knew in his overall creation plan that a few days down the road, he's going to be creating animals with eyes, us with eyes, to see the light that God created on day one. He doesn't need it. So we see that his omnipresence even extends to the darkest places. So David has written that God, there's nothing God doesn't know about him. There's no place he can go that God's not already there. Now he will write about God's omnipotence. But as he's done before, it's going to be how his God's omnipotence applies and relates directly to him. Now David starts the third stanza with the word for. This is a tr what we call a transition word. And that is a word that connects new information with what was already written. Uh, just a little lesson within a lesson. There are other transition words, such as then, therefore, but. If you're studying a passage and you see those words, you want to look at what went on before to get a fuller understanding. So we're all familiar with John 3:16, For God so loved the world. If we're studying that passage, we would want to look at well, what was written before that to help us better understand what follows? So here, the word for means that this stanza is going to explain the previous two. David is essentially saying, I'm going to explain to you why God knows me so well, why he is present everywhere in my life and is so concerned about me. So we start in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. 
My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were written, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. So, verse 13, David paints a picture of God forming his body that he was woven together. A process we kind of consider normal, the conception and development of a child in the womb, in fact, has God's fingerprint and craftsmanship all over it. Job expressed the same idea when he wrote, you clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love and your care has preserved my spirit. So this idea that David is so carefully made by God caused him to break out in praise in verse 14 when he says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it well. So to better understand David's thoughts here, let's break this verse down a bit. First, fearfully. It means what it says, fear. And, and we're talking about the, remember Jesus wrote about, when he's talking about whom to truly fear, when he said, don't fear man because all he can do is kill you. Fear the one who kills you and can then condemn you to hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's the kind of fear we're talking about here. Uh, as, as Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. However, included in this word is a sense of awe and reverence that arises from this fear. For example, in Proverbs 13, 13, whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. In Psalm 65, 8, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs, you make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. So we see the same word variously translated as fear and revere and awe. And then we see this word wonderfully. And that word brings with it the idea of being separate and distinct. David recognizes that as God is forming him and knitting him together, he is making him distinct and unique from anyone else. <clears throat> if David were to write this in a more contemporary English, he might write, God, you have made me awesomely unique. But before we leave, i got to slow down here. But before we leave this thought, let's clarify a couple things. First of all, this is all God's doing. David has no part in it. He's not in the womb saying, God, can you make me smart and brave and strong? And while you're at it, give me great skills with the sling. Okay, no, this, is, this all is God's doing. Second, and I think most important, God did not do anything more special when he was forming David in the womb than he did with any of us when he was forming us in the womb. 
we can all put our name to this passage. And then he finishes this praise stanza with, wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. Now, the word translated wonderful here is different from wonderfully. Here, this word means surpassing or extraordinary or marvelous. And this is how David describes God's work. David returns to the description is forming in verses 15 and 16. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. <clears throat> your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. David again uses the illustration of needlework, that his body is being woven like a fine tapestry, and God can see all of it in the depths of the earth which is a euphemism for in the womb. So this is well before the days of x-rays and sonograms. A child forming and growing in the womb could not be seen. But even though it was not visible to man, God was there. Weaving, forming, crafting. David recognized God's creative power, his omnipotence in the care that God took in forming him. And then in verse 16, David recognizes that God also knows his life story. That before the foundation of time, all the days that were formed for him were already written in God's book. That to God, David's life is an open book. Now, this is going to include the, uh, the good times and the bad, the triumphs and the failures, the times that David was sore and the times that he would fall. But now, as David finishes this, we start to see a transition. Recall in the first two, stanzas, David, first two stanzas, David was uncomfortable with how much God knew about him and how God was limiting where he could go. But now in 17 and 18, David writes, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. First, we see that God's thoughts are precious to David. They're valuable. They're treasurable. But they're also beyond his ability to take them all in. Much like he said back in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Then in verse 18, David gives us this picture of the infinite nature of God's thoughts. He would be like, it would be like counting stand. So I remember my first trip to Sierra Leone. We flew down from Europe, and you get to cross the Sahara Desert. And I was amazed at this vast patch of sand. It took us over two hours to fly across it. And I'm looking out the window, and sand is all you can see from the front off to the horizon. Well, David's telling us, such are the precious thoughts of God. They stretch to the horizon. David goes to sleep thinking of God's precious thoughts and with God on his mind, and he awakens the next morning. Again, God's thoughts are on his mind. So when David considers the care that God took in forming him, he seems no longer disturbed by God's knowledge about him, by God's presence everywhere. 
Instead, he sees God's thoughts as infinitely valuable. And then we get to the fourth stanza. David concludes this psalm with a request of God, but before we get there, there's some verses 19 through 22 we got to get past. So let's read those. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Now, up to this point, we've been on a smooth road until we get here. And as I'm reading this and preparing for this, it was like suddenly I came along, uh, uh, along a series of speed bumps because I couldn't figure out how this fits in here. What's its purpose? So, I am blessed enough to have a good friend that's also an Old Testament scholar. So I went to talk to him. And he told me that this passage is an imprecation or an imprecatory passage because scholars have big words like that. That is a passage that calls forth judgment, calamity, or curses upon one's enemy or God's enemy, as we see in the case here. And I learned that in David's culture, this was a way of expressing loyalty. In other words, David was expressing his loyalty to God by speaking against God's enemies. That one can either be on God's side or on the enemy's side, there is no middle ground. Now, we tend to express our loyalties more directly with phrases like, I'll support you, I'll follow you anywhere, I'm with you. David turns that by completely separating himself from God's enemies. So in expressing his utter and complete hatred for God, and for God, I'm sorry, oh, let me start that one over. In expressing his utter and complete hatred for God's enemies, he is expressing his, his loyalty to God. It is on God's side that he will be and on God he will be loyal to. So in the first two verses, David would have God slay the wicked. Slay wouldn't even be near him because they speak against God with malicious intent and take his name to no good purpose. He refers to them as your enemies. Then in the second two verses, he expresses his complete and utter hatred for God, God's enemies, and calls them my enemies. And by doing so, he's declaring his complete loyalty to God. So now we can see, as we've gone through this progression of God's knowledge, God's presence, God's power, and he says, God, I'm utterly and completely loyal to you, so I have a request of you. In verse 23 and 24, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So recall in the first stanza, we had phrases like, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. Uh, you discern my thoughts from afar. You are acquainted with all my ways. And how uncomfortable those ideas made David. But now we say David, we see David asking God to do the very things that earlier had given him discomfort. First, he asked God to search him, examine him, and know his heart, to test him and know his thoughts. Now, the word here for thoughts could be better translated to anxieties. 
David is asking God to search me and see what makes me anxious. Then he asks God to see if there's anything he does, anything about him that grieves God, anything that makes God sorrowful. He wants to know that. And then he asks God to lead him into the life that God would have for him to be the way God wants him to be. So David completes this transition. Rather than seeing a life hemmed in and confined by God, he recognizes a life that falls within divine limits. And is with, it is within those limits that David desires to live. So herein lies some of the lessons for me, anyhow, maybe for you as well. First, God knows me completely down to the depths of my heart, down to the dark places I'd rather not even look. He knows my thoughts so well that he knows what I'm going to say before I say it. He knows when I'm going to stumble over words before I stumble. Admitting God's knowledge about me, his omniscience as it relates to me, along with his indwelling Holy Spirit, helps me to become the man that God wants me to be. As Paul wrote in Ephesians, for we are his worksmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I can tell you, I am not there yet. You are looking at a work in progress. But I can also tell you from my own experience, God is a patient craftsman. Then there's the fact of God's presence everywhere. There's no place I can be where God is not already present. Now, that can be a very comforting thought. If I'm in the midst of a trial, I know that God is present there with me. It can also be a fearful thought for me because sometimes along the way, I have not been where I ought to be. And I recognize God is there as well. So one day, Shirley and I were driving into Farmington, New Mexico. And on the outskirts of town, there was an adult video store. Well, right next to this store, the Catholic Church had erected a great big billboard. And on that billboard was a painting of Christ and the words, Jesus is watching you. I thought that was genius. But I also thought, probably like you're thinking now, would that we would have more of those signs around? Because I can guarantee it would have helped me along the way. But lastly, I want God to lead me. I want him to keep me within those divine limits. There is a path that God wants me to take. There are places he does want me to go. And I got to tell you, sometimes that path can lead to unexpected places. Recall that passage we read about uh, the Spirit preventing Paul from going into Bithynia? Well, if we continue reading that passage, as Paul Harvey would say, we're going to get the rest of the story. And most of you are going out there going, who? And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel there. God led Paul to a place he did not expect to go. And so with this in mind, I would like to share an experience with you of my own. So a few years ago, Bethel was preparing uh, for a trip to Sierra Leone, Africa. One of the couples going on the trip 
uh, Jerry and Marty Putman emailed Shirley and I and uh, saying that they thought we'd be a good fit for the trip. Well, my wife Shirley immediately went about packing her bags. I immediately went about digging my heels in. What am I going to do there? What's the purpose? It's expensive. There are other places I want to go. Had all the excuses. I wish I'd been more like Philip. You know, Philip, the story of Philip, an Ethiopian eunuch, where the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, get up and just go out on the desert road. Doesn't tell him where he's going to go, what he's going to do there. Just get up and go. And he got up and went. That was not me. All right. I had all the excuses. After some back and forth, my loving bride acquiesced, and I replied to the email that we would not be going. That evening, we decided to watch a movie that had been recommended to us. So after dinner, we sat in our living room and watched The Heart of Man. I cannot tell you what it was about that movie that changed my mind and my heart. I don't know, maybe it was a picture of me wanting to play a violin with my father, and we're going to go do that in Africa. I don't know. Here's what I do know. By the end of the film, God had convinced me that I had to go. So I turned to Shirley and first asked a really stupid question. Because guys, that's what we do, isn't it? Yeah. I said, you really want to go on this trip, don't you? To which my bride, with the patience of Job, said, Rob, you know I do, but we've already decided. Well, then I said the thing I should have said first. We have to go. We just have to go. So the next morning, I sent another email saying, forget the one I sent last night, we're in. Shortly after that is when, is when God started showing me his purpose in sending me there. It began with Mark Matei coming to me and saying, Rob, we have a plan to teach some, a curriculum. It's a curriculum based on systematic theology, and would you like to help us teach? I said, of course I would. I love to teach. Then Jeff Bice comes to me a couple days later and says, Rob, I understand you're a pretty serious photographer. And I said, yes, I am. Would you take your camera along and take some pictures of what we're doing over there so we can better tell the story of God's work in Sierra Leone? And I said, of course I will. I love taking pictures. That's when I heard the voice that said, see, I have a purpose in you going. So then I get to Sierra Leone. I'm teaching. I'm taking pictures. And meanwhile, God is giving me a passion for the people there and what he is doing through Bethel there. And then I understood his purpose in sending me there. Now, I'm not saying everyone needs to go to Sierra Leone. The path that God has outlined for each of us is different. I am saying be open to wherever God will send you, whatever he will have you do. Is it possible that you will go places that might make you uncomfortable or will test you? or maybe someplace you don't even want to go, or someplace you even imagined you would never go? Well, absolutely. As in dealing with us, God at times can seem unpredictable. So I retired from the military in 1998 after 26 years, and I'd been moving my whole life, and I was ready to settle down. So we moved to Corinth, Texas, just outside Denton, found our forever home, and I was going to put roots down. God had other plans. After that, we lived in Salt Lake City, Utah, Oklahoma City, until we came down here. All places I never expected to go, yet here I am. But I learned that while God can be unpredictable, 
God is always faithful. Recall what David wrote when he said that God will never send us a place where he's not already present. Never have, do, have us do anything that he doesn't have a purpose. So as we look at this, this psalm, I get four quick takeaways here. First, God knows us completely better than we know ourselves. Second, God is present everywhere. There is no place we can be where he's not already there. Third, each of us is uniquely and awesomely crafted by God. And with those, that should encourage us, should encourage each of us to ask God, to examine us, show us things that make him grieve, and then to lead us in the path of life that he would have for us to live. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time we could spend in your word. I pray, Father, that your word will pierce us to the depths of our hearts and that we would leave here today a little more prepared for the tasks you have set before us. And Father, I pray that you would lead and guide us in the way you have in your book written every one of them. The days were formed for us when as yet there were none of them. And we lift this prayer by the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.